0: now last week, well, just to bring you up to speed, we've been for the last several weeks since just about the beginning of the year, I think, is when we began uh, what, our, what we call our red-letter studies. These are the specific teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, because a lot of times those teachings get kind of buried in the routine. Uh, get, they get forgotten because it takes a little bit more work to dig them out of the Word. They're not so nicely arranged for us like the teachings of Paul, Paul or of Peter, or of some of the other books of the Bible. You have to go in and you have to dig through the historical narrative of the Gospels, and then you have to understand them in their right perspective, because while Jesus lived and walked upon the earth, the law of Moses was still in effect. Jesus had not yet died. That final and ultimate sacrifice had not yet been made that allows us to be not just um, disciples, but children of Almighty God. And so it takes a little bit more work to apply these in the right sense. But we've been digging into them. We began over in Matthew chapter 5 with the Sermon on the Mount, spent quite a lot of time there in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And now we're sort of moving through the more sparse areas of Scripture where there's less of the red letters, less of the specific teachings of Jesus. But there's some good stuff in here. And last week, if you'll remember, we came to rest for a little while on verses 20 and on 22 because there's a really good lesson. There are two very good lessons there in very few words. Verse 20, just to review, we actually will pick it up in verse 19, and we mentioned it on Sunday morning, even in the message. A certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And you wouldn't think that there's much of a lesson in there, but there's a huge lesson in there. What was he telling this scribe? He was telling him that if you're going to follow me, there's going to be a price. There's going to be a cost. It's going to cost you something to be a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not in order to become one. That's not what he was saying. We know that salvation comes by faith and it comes by faith alone. And that's a a fundamental truth of Christianity that cannot be overstated because the natural mind and the carnal mind uh, very very often wants to rely upon our own works and our own good deeds and our own attempts at righteousness and then rely upon that. I'm a good enough person. I'm a moral person. I'm I'm an upright person and therefore God will give me a place in heaven. Well, we know that that's not the way that it is. And Jesus makes that very clear. And the Apostle Paul makes that very, very clear. that it is That's not how salvation is obtained. That's, how not, that's not how righteousness is obtained. But his lesson to this scribe was that if we're going to follow Jesus, it's still going to cost us something. But don't be afraid of the price. That's the real lesson there. Okay, it's going to cost me something to be a Christian. Okay, well, that spooks me. Well, don't let it spook you. Because what you get for that price is invaluable. It's beyond, it's beyond compare. It's beyond measure. Don't be afraid of the price. Don't be afraid of the price, whatever that may be. Well, what might that be? Well, it could be a lot of things. It could be a lot of things. The, very, the first thing that it costs, and it costs some people more than others. Okay, we'll grant that. God doesn't have everyone called to precisely the same path in life. And we've talked about that in the, pa- in the past. We've talked about how God has a common will for every human being. Every man and woman, He has a common will for them all. But then for individual men and women, He has a specific will. And those wills don't contradict. And to give you an example of that, alright? Well, what's an example of the common will of God for every man and woman? Salvation. That's the... First example of God's common will for the entire human race. He would that all men and women be saved. He would that all men and women be born again, repent of their sins, come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and develop a relationship with God not no longer as sinner and judge, but as children of their Father who is in heaven. So that's an example of His common will. The indwelling of the Holy Ghost, another example of His common will. Uh, The the casting aside of all sins and living an upright life. Sanctification by, by the working of God in our lives. Those are all examples of the common will of God. But examples of His specific will. Well, what does God want you to do now that you're a Christian? Now you see how it starts getting more specific. Some people he has called into a ministerial role. Many more he does not necessarily have called into a ministerial role, but he still has a specific path that he wants them to pursue in life. I I heard tell of this. I'm not necessarily endorsing the view, but I could appreciate where it came from. Uh, I heard of a man standing up and giving a testimony in a church that he was an ordained plumber. Now, I got a kick out of that. Now, and I know where that, where, that, where that was coming from. That's what God wanted him doing. He wasn't saying that being a plumber was a ministry. He was just saying that that's what God wanted him doing in his life. And that he was, he was submitted to that and, and committed to that as a faithful servant and son of Almighty God. And so it's different for different people. And as, a ch- as church members, once we come to the knowledge of the truth and we've accepted Christ as our Savior, your life really is an open book. It's whatever God wills, and your options may be endless. And that's a tremendous liberty and a wonderful thing to know that so long as it's pleasing to God, you can do whatever you want to do. Obviously, the things that go without saying, you know, the things that don't involve sin. Oh, I'm a Christian now. I want to be the most successful adult bookstore manager that ever was. Uh, Wait. Hold on, brother. Let's have a talk. There's probably a conflict of interest there. And I'm using something as extreme and, and obvious just as an example. But whatever the price might be to remain, to remain and to continue as a disciple of our Lord Jesus, let's not be afraid of that cost. Let's not be afraid of it. Let's not be afraid of it if it involves giving up something that we love dearly. Let's not be afraid of that because God is fully prepared to give us something that is better or even to give us back the very same thing. If it's, again, if it's something that's not against the Word of God He's and has often done this, take away one thing with his left hand and give it right back with his right once he knows that we're willing to surrender it. So that was one of last week's major messages or major lessons. And then right on the heels of that, verse 22, well, verses 21 and 22, another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Well, the lesson out of that was not that Jesus was a hard line, hard nosed unsympathetic person that didn't want to let one of his disciples go and give his dead father a funeral. That was not the lesson. The lesson there was, first of all, this disciple's father was certainly still alive. And what his disciple was asking him was, let me stay at home and live with my family until my father dies. And then I'll feel free of that familial obligation and then I can come and follow you. That's really what what this disciple was asking. And what Jesus was telling him was, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Don't miss this divine opportunity in order to hold on to something that is comfortable and familiar. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that He was anti-family. Far from it. We are told in the Word, Old Testament and New Testament, to honor our mothers and fathers, to obey our parents in the Lord, and, and and to revere them even. Okay, so all of that's in place. Jesus wasn't undoing that. The greater lesson there was, don't miss your divine opportunity. If Jesus had told that disciple, and we don't know what that disciple ultimately chose to do, but if Jesus had told him, sure, there's plenty of time. Go ahead, take care of mom and dad. And when they're dead and gone, then come and seek me out. I'm not going anywhere. Because Jesus knew better. He would have only three short years of earthly ministry, and then he would be gone, taken away. And while the apostles were wonderful people, and their words were the inspired word of God, the apostles weren't Jesus, were they? And so this was this man's divine opportunity to be a direct disciple of our living Lord while he walked upon the earth. Three years out of multiple... Thousands of years of human history, that was not an opportunity to be missed. Well, how do we apply that to our lives? And I know that this is a lot of review here, but this is very, very important. And it's worth taking a, a measure of repetition to cover this. Okay, how does that apply to our lives? Well, what's the, what is the unique divine opportunity that God's giving us? That we might be tempted to pass over to hold on to something that's familiar Now I'm not saying it's the same situation that this disciple faced, but we all faced this at some point or another. I faced it when it came to my parents. This was back in the early 1990s, because I've always been been part of a very close and a very tightly knit family, not very close geographically. We weren't raised to stay close to home. We were raised to scatter to the four winds like our father did. We just followed his example like our, our dad did. But... We were always a very, and and still remain to this day, a fairly close-knit and a pretty tight family. But God had marching orders on my life. And if I had sacrificed that to hold on to that which was comfortable and familiar in my life, well, you all would have a different pastor today because who knows where I'd be. I don't think I would have been in the will of God, I'll tell you that right now, because He wanted me to pursue a specific course. Now that being said, Don't miss your divine opportunity for the sake of the familiar or for the comfortable. Now moving on in verse 23. Now we're in the new material here. Verse 23, new paragraph. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea insomuch as the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. What's that? Jesus was asleep. He was completely unbothered By the storm that was tossing the boat around. And the disciples, his disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? And he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, "What manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him?" Now, You got to remember, this is still fairly early in Jesus's ministry. He was he's, he's fresh off the Sermon on the Mount, which was uh, probably the I want to say probably the beginning of it, but was certainly in the early parts of it, in, in, in and around the beginning of his ministry. So it wasn't widely known or widely suspected yet that this was Messiah. Okay. So a lot of people simply regarded him at this point still as a teacher or as a prophet. Possibly some were beginning to suspect that maybe he was Elias or Elijah uh, returned according to prophecy. None of which was actually the case, but it wasn't widely suspected yet that this was the prophesied Messiah. So here they're in a ship. Jesus is unbothered because nothing really catches him. He's capable of being surprised. We covered that in the previous Bible study. But nothing really alarms him. That's what I'm, That's the distinction I'm trying to make him. He can be pleasantly surprised or unpleasantly disappointed. But he's never alarmed. Now that's an important lesson to grasp right there. God is never alarmed. He is never alarmed. He is never caught off guard. And that's one reason why our battles we can bring them to him and he's completely unfazed. He's completely unfazed. Jesus unalarmed keeps a cool spirit even in the midst of a crisis. That's a good attitude to emulate, something that we want to incorporate into our own lives. Don't think that don't think it wrong or don't think yourself incapable of Possessing the same character as our Lord. Now, a lot of people, they don't want to dare to reach that high because one, they don't think that they can reach it, okay? And two, they don't think that they need to. They don't think that they need to. Especially if they're still holding on to a self-justifying mentality concerning their relationship with God, which is the I'm only human defense. Does that make sense? You've heard that lots of times from people. Well, I'm only human, God understands. God understands why, you know, well, God can't expect this of me. I mean, he understands I'm only human. And usually you hear that, you hear that applied to things uh, involving money or personal behavior, which is to say giving up a certain kind of sin. That's where you usually hear that kind of an objection. Well, God understands I'm only human. In other words... I'm not willing to try harder to be better, no matter what Jesus paid to redeem me. That's really what that boils down to. It really does boil down to that. Now, we're in an age, especially you look at today's age, today's modern age, of shirking blame, passing the buck, uh, uh, averting responsibility, personal responsibility for our own decisions and our own actions. That, that's a very, <laughs> that is a, That is an epidemic problem, especially among our younger generations. But you find it among people, now you find it among people well into their 40s that have adapted this kind of an attitude towards life. Irresponsibility or non-responsibility or averting blame, even when blame is theirs to be had. They don't want responsibility. But responsibility rests on our shoulders nevertheless. And there's people that try to even shirk the necessity to be born again by using the same kind of an argument. I didn't ask to be here. In other words, it's not my fault that I'm alive, so why should I have to pay the price and be responsible and try to be something better than a rot-gut, God-rebelling sinner? Well, because you're here, that's why. Why? So none of us asked to be here. None of us uh, went to God before we were born, at least not to our knowledge. We don't really know how it was before we were conceived. Lots of people expect, have uh, speculated, and we're not really going to try to build a doctrine on that, okay? We do know that uh, before we were formed in the womb, God said, I knew you. He said that of one of the minor prophets, okay? Well, you can extrapolate something out of that. That's fine. But none of us, to our knowledge, ever went, went to God before we were born and said, I want to be born on the earth, in a fallen world, and I want to be born in a state of sin, broken, and in a, in a state of ruin, and in need of a Redeemer. I want to go through that. I don't think any of us in our right minds would have actually asked for that, but here we are. And so because we're alive on the earth, there's responsibility. There's a responsibility. And the first responsibility is to be honest with ourselves, face our face our condition, and then to accept the the supernatural and the divine opportunity to be born again and then as being born again to accept the responsibility for then going from good to better now this gets a little controversial among believers i know i know and it's uncomfortable it's uncomfortable because changing yourself is hard isn't it like anything that requires self discipline. I'm not trying to reduce the Christian life or the Christian experience to, uh, I'm not trying to reduce it to just a, an exercise in force of will or willpower, all right? It goes far, far beyond that, all right? Nevertheless, it's there. And we could go back over to 2 Peter chapter 1, where he talks about add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. And to knowledge temperance and he adds several items to that list. Add to your but it begins with faith. all right Well faith is the gift of God. Praise God. if we're believers tonight, and I think every one of us here are, if we're believers tonight, then we have that. God gave it to us, we accepted it, we've embraced it, and by that we are born again. okay, but now what? And that's something that we stress in this church a lot is now what? Well, now what is grow in the grace and knowledge of God? What Peter the the Apostle said there, and I know that's not the core of our study tonight, but it ties into what we're talking about here, even if only loosely. What Peter said, the language was very clear. He said, add to your faith. He didn't say pray that God would add these things to your faith. He puts it on the shoulders of us, the believer. He puts it on us. To add to our faith virtue. Well, what does it take to add to our faith virtue? It takes practice, doesn't it? Well, how do I be more patient? Exercise the patience that you have. Practice the patience that you have. And it will grow, hopefully, without having to go through tribulation. I I think we've all heard about that. Don't pray for patience because tribulation worketh patience. If you really want patience and you want to learn it the fast way, then sure, pray for patience. And then watch as all kinds of things go wrong in your life. Your car breaks, you lose your job, you start having health problems, you know, or some other catastrophe happens in your life because those are tribulatory. Those are things that are painful. And painful things are a transformative work in our lives. And one of the things that they, exer- that they bring about in our lives is patience. Okay, well, why not practice the patience you have? And see if you can get that to grow. Uh, What other virtues are there? Well, there's no end to Well, there probably is an end to them, but there are many of them. If you want to be an honest person, practice honesty. God commands it anyway. It's a commandment. And it's an absolute. It's an absolute. A white lie is still a lie. I'll send someone to hell just as fast as, a, as, a, as, as any other kind of lie. If you want to practice temperance, if you want to be temperate, I should say, then practice temperance. That's self-control. Okay, if you have a particular um, hobby or something that you love and you love it so much that it swallows half your paycheck and you have trouble paying the bills, well, that's intemperance. That's not temperance. So you want to rein that in. Well, how do you do it? Well, you pray and then you just start doing it. You don't wait for it to divinely arrive in your heart because when you got saved... When you got saved, the seed of every single righteous virtue was sown in your heart the moment you were born again. But you have to develop them, don't you? Because if it didn't work that way, or really, really, let's, let's learn this and let this sink down deeply into our hearts and our minds and our understanding and, 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 and in our souls, okay? If it didn't work that way, if it was just instant perfection and perfect virtue the moment we were born again... I don't even have to finish that thought, do I? Because we know better, don't we? We know better. And that's what the mercy of God is for and the grace of God and His patience and His long-suffering for us. He knows that perfection is not wrought in an instant when we're coming out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Now, that transformation from sinner to saint happens or from you know sinner to child of God, that happens in an instant. But from that point forward, all the way through to the end of our days, God's going to work on you. And He's working on me. He's going to work on all of us. And it simply remains to us to allow Him to do His work and to even pitch in a helping hand. Because God knows we certainly fight him enough. But a lot of times not realizing that that's what we're doing. And it's very possible to resist the Holy Ghost. Stephen the martyr even rebuked a number of Jewish believers or a number of Jews that were there over in the book of Acts. He said, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. Well, man, I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't think any of us want to. So all of that from this one thing. Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this that even the winds and sea obey Him? Well, what manner of man He was and still is, is the Son of God. The perfect man. Absolutely perfect. Unalarmed in a state of crisis. Possessed of a cool spirit. And it wasn't... It wasn't um, It wasn't naivety that brought this about, but it was certainty. All right, and here's the lesson in this part. It was a a spirit of absolute certainty. He knew he had authority over wind and waves. He had all power. He had the authority over these things. And so what cause did he have to be alarmed? All right, well, what's the lesson there for us? Well, if Jesus is our Lord and our brother... And that, came, that was part of Sunday morning's message also when we jumped back over into the Gospel of John and when Mary ran to the tomb and Jesus appeared there and spoke to her and said, go and tell my brethren. What's that mean? That's his family. It wasn't just talking about his natural half-brothers. He was talking about his disciples, those that hear the Word of God and do it. There's both of them that are in there, not being hearers only like James talks about, but being doers as well. He says, Go and tell my brethren that I ascend unto my Father and your Father. What was he saying there? He was declaring plainly, We're family, and God is not just our God, He is our Father. So there, here's the lesson there. It's, a, it's a, a cool spirit and an unalarmed spirit that is born of certainty. How does that apply to us? Well, if Jesus had that kind of power and he told us that you'll do greater works than these, you connect the dots. So, why should we be alarmed in any kind of a crisis? Why should we be alarmed? If God is our God and God is our Father and God is in control ultimately of all things and we have placed our absolute unbending, unbreaking, unshaking trust in Him, then why should we be alarmed at anything? Now that's not to say that something doesn't happen you don't get serious in a flat hurry. If you have children and you've ever watched one of them pass out on the floor and you had to call an ambulance and you know that... Uh, there's a certain measure of alarm that's going to come along with certain things. Okay, granted. But is there fear there? That's what Jesus was talking about here. Why are ye fearful? Verse 26. O ye of little faith. Well, that he answered his own question. They were of little faith. That's why they were fearful. So to be alarmed is one thing. To be suddenly uh, that fight or flight response. Something happens and that adrenaline kicks in and you've got to hustle and make something happen to keep something worse from happening. Okay, well that's one thing. That's being driven. But being fearful is where there's a failure. Because fear demonstrates a lack of faith. Fear demonstrates a lack of faith. At least if you let that fear cripple you or drive you, or steer you on the wrong path. Do you see what we're saying here? Well, what what happens if I'm fearful, but I'm still doing the right thing? Then you're doing the right thing, because you're pushing through that fear. And that's a way that you crush and conquer it. Because we push through the fear. So something happens in your life, whether it's uh, God laying something on your life and you're fearful you're afraid to pursue it, or a disaster or a catastrophe, something, something bad or challenging happens in your life. How do we meet that? If there's fear there, OK, but do we push through it? That's the thing to do. When we're confronted with fear of the unknown. And that's a perfectly natural response too. That's perfectly natural. Human psychology. Uh, we're all uh, confronted with the fear of the unknown. It's why people love routine. It really is. It's why we're creatures of habit and of routine and of all these other things. But if, if there's something that we have to face that we don't want to. Or whatever the case may be. Or if God's calling us into something that we want to do but we're just afraid to do it. Don't let that stop you. Don't let that hinder you. Just push through it, because it's of a, if it's of God, God will be there to catch you. And that's a promise, because Jesus even said it over in the Gospels, I will never, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He didn't place any conditions on that whatsoever. Now, people are capable of leaving him, but he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that applies to to any circumstance whatsoever. That applies to catastrophes, a sick child, or even the death of a child, death of a loved one, whether it's parent or child or spouse or whatever the case may be. Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? When my job situation's dicey. I'm I'm not sure the way that this is gonna go. I don't know if I'm gonna have a job next week. Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Well, I've been sick. I've been sick for a long time. I don't know if I'm gonna. I, I don't know if I'm gonna get. I don't know if I'm gonna recover from this or not. Why are ye fearful? Ye have little faith. Man, a terminal illness? No, I'm not hoping for that myself. I would like to live a nice, wonderful, healthy life to a good, ripe old age. You know, and then die peacefully, painlessly in my sleep. Wouldn't we all like to go that way, right? You know, <laughs> no pain. But if we're in the Lord, well, death has no sting anymore. Why are we fearful? Or why should we be fearful? I'm not saying any of us are. We're just putting that out there. The main lesson you could take away is this. Don't be fearful of anything, of anything, not any catastrophe, not any challenge. And if you're facing something that God wants you to do, don't be fearful to pursue it. The devil's going to be there pumping your head full of all kinds of what-ifs and all kinds of hypothetical situations. He'll get you obsessing on five different hypothetical situations and get you tied up in a knot of anxiety about all five of them, not even thinking about the fact that only one of them could possibly happen at a time, right? You see his tricks? He'll tie you in a pretzel if he can, if you let him. But don't let him. Set your face like a flint, like the disciples did. Set your face like a flint and say, I will do what God wants me to do, come what may. Even if it costs me something. Even if it costs me my life. If it costs me my health. If it costs me whatever the case may be. Because God is good and He only only ever intends good for me. Verse 28. And we can kind of encapsulate this. Verses 28 through 34 is a a specific incident, and there's only one word of Jesus in this particular incident, but there's things to learn from it. And when he was come to the other side of the country of the Gergesenes, I'm just going to pronounce it like that and hope that it's right. Forgive me if I have it wrong. It won't change the teaching. There met him... Two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? And there was a good way off from them a herd of swine, a herd of many swine feeding. So the devils besought them, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said unto them, Go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine. And behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. And they that kept them fled. And went their ways into the city and told everything and what was befallen to the possessed of the devils. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they besought him that, they, that he would depart out of their coasts. Wow. Now, there's a lot happened here. This is a pretty dramatic incident. Let's sum it up here without the King James English. Jesus came to another part of the country and met a couple of people that were possessed by devils. What do we take off from that? What do we take away from that? Well, we know that demonic possession is a very real thing. It is not a Hollywood myth. It is not just fodder for bad Hollywood horror movies. It is a thing that can happen to people if people open themselves up to it. It's not something that happens easily. And it's not something that people are utterly defenseless against. And where Christians are concerned, born-again, blood-bought believers, okay? The devil cannot or devils cannot possess you. He's incapable of it because there dwells in you a measure of the Spirit of God. And that even a measure of the Spirit of God is stronger than any one of them. And there's a whole teaching on that that we can go to into another time. Perhaps it's a good topical study for another day. But demonic possession is real. It can happen. So these men met, met him, but the devils that had possessed those men recognized instantly who Jesus was. They saw with different eyes. They knew who they were looking at. And they knew that he was bigger and stronger than they were because of the question that they asked him. They said, what have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? From that, you know that they knew that their time was short and that their time was limited. And they knew that they weren't going to win the fight. You see, reading a little bit deeper, you can extract all kinds of stuff, all kinds of good lessons from this material. They already knew that they were on the losing side of that eternal war or of that spiritual war. It's not an eternal one. It's going to come to an end. They knew they were on the losing side. And so all that they were interested in was in maximizing their time before their judgment. How do we avoid... How do, we, how, do we, how do we make our time as long as possible before we have to go into that burning sea, that burning lake called the Lake of Fire? And so they besought him. They entreated our Lord. They begged for mercy and to be allowed to depart from those men and to enter into a herd of swine that was nearby. All right, well, what do we learn from that? Well, there's a pretty clear lesson there that demonic possession of animals is also possible if it's allowed. How often is that allowed? Now that I don't know. And I I don't want to turn this into a lesson on demonology. That really is a very unedifying subject. And believe it or not, the less you know about some things, the better off you are, really. And I don't promote ignorance Uh, as a general rule, but I mean it when I say that. And we're admonished to a similar extent in Scripture. I think it was Paul, the apostle, who said, I would that you were simple concerning certain things, concerning darkness and things of darkness and and wise in, in, in things concerning the light. But it's evident from this Bible reading that demonic possession of animals was possible. Well, we already knew that anyway from the Garden of Eden, didn't we? Because the serpent was Subtle. Alright, and there's a whole lesson behind this too, but maybe we can cover it all if I'm, if I'm quick enough. Okay, because this, this is really cool. Alright. So they begged him, let us go into the pigs. And Jesus, what's the lesson here? Jesus was merciful even to the devils. Alright, these were these were whether they were fallen angels or demonic spirits, whatever their origin was, you know, these were unclean spirits. These were servants of the these were the servants of the devil. And he was merciful even unto them. With his one-word answer, go. Because Jesus' mission wasn't to judge them. It wasn't time for that yet. Jesus' mission was to deliver these two men that were possessed by them. Do you see the difference? Do you see the distinction? It might be a subtle distinction, but it's important. Jesus didn't come to the earth to rain down fire and destruction. Jesus didn't come to the earth to judge Jesus came to the earth on a mission of mercy to save the human race from their sins, to set up that system, that that plan of salvation so that any who believed upon Him could be born again. And so His mission wasn't to judge these devils. His mission was to deliver these men. And so He said, go. He was merciful to them. And so He let them have what they wanted. And so out they went. Those spirits... Fled from those men, those unclean spirits fled from those men, entered into the swine, but ha ha jokes on them. Because what happened next? Even the pigs had better sense than to allow themselves to be possessed by demonic spirits. Because what do we read about? What, what do we read happened? The whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea. Even pigs knew to die is better than to be possessed by these things. And so they ran down into the water and drowned. It was a deliberate decision. Pigs aren't stupid. They really aren't. They're kind of gross, but they taste good. But they're not stupid. They're not stupid. The swine, understanding that something unthinkable was happening to them, chose death over possession and why not why not demonic possession is is an absolute horror to the person who's possessed well it, to the person who's possessed who maybe doesn't realize that that's what they were in for now some people they open up themselves to that sort of thing willingly they open themselves up to it willingly they don't realize that the forces that they're flirting with they don't control those forces control them and it takes, something, it takes something miraculous. It takes the Spirit of God. It takes the, the absolute miraculous grace of God to deliver somebody from that. But it does happen, and many people have been. So now, that being said, from this point, there's, there's one or two more lessons left in this. We'll cover them very quickly here because that's not quite the end of the story. Now, those two men were delivered of that possession, and that was a victory. That was a wonderful thing. But now look how everybody reacted. Let's read. And they that kept them fled. They that kept that herd of swine. First of all, they shouldn't have had that in. That's herd of swine anyway, right? These were Jews under the law of Moses. And under the law of Moses, the pig was an unclean animal. They weren't supposed to handle him, touch them, raise them, slaughter them, eat them, do anything with them. They were supposed to have no place and no part in the kingdom of Israel and among the people of God because that was the law of Moses, and it wasn't just pigs. There were lots of others. They couldn't eat shrimp. They couldn't eat lobster. Shellfish were considered unclean. It was pretty tragic if you think about it, but, you know, if you grow up in that, you know, you don't know any better, and you have other good things to eat, so it doesn't make any difference. But They shouldn't have had him anyway. So they that kept that swine, kept the herd, verse 33, they fled and they went their ways into the city and told everything that was befallen to the possessed of the devils. Now you would think this is a good report and the people in the city would be like, yay, the people that were possessed of devils have been freed and liberated, right? No, they all came out from the city to meet Jesus and they besought him that he would leave. Why? Why? Well, it cost some people an entire herd of swine. That's not cheap. Shows you where their priorities were. One, they didn't care enough about God to care about his law. And so, two, they kept unclean animals as herd beasts. And three, when, it, when, it, when Jesus cost them that part of their economy, they weren't happy about it. They could have cared less about those men that had been possessed of devils. All they cared about was what they lost. Do you see? The loss was theirs, and they lost more than swine that day. Because Jesus did move along. They lost more than swine that day. They lost their divine opportunity, didn't they? Had they come out with a different attitude, even though they'd been keeping swine and were in violation of the law of Moses, had they come out with a different attitude and said, and had come out to Jesus. Uh, glorifying what God had accomplished. Perhaps Jesus would have stayed for a while and taught them and shown them and enlightened their minds the same way that He enlightened His own disciples' minds there on the Sermon on the Mount and said the same things to them that He told His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. Things like, You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. And many other things besides. They being overmuch concerned about money and what they lost and their particular catastrophe that had befallen them. They completely overlooked who was blessed and delivered, and they completely overlooked who did the blessing and the deliverance. So we can actually take this, this concluding Episode of chapter 8 and we can tie it into last week's lesson and what we reviewed at the beginning of this lesson this evening. Don't miss your divine opportunity. Don't miss it by being fearful of something that's facing you or by being angry about something you've lost. Okay? There's an opportunity in it. There's something of God in it recognize it embrace it and let god bless your life through it amen amen i think it's a good place to stop it's a good place to stop we'll pick it up be at the will of the lord we'll pick it up next week in chapter nine so thank you for listening to come to the table bible studies from the new testament christian church of cheyenne included in these presentations are red letter studies on the life and teachings of our lord jesus christ historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash WY dash giving.